be a little bit there. Um, of course, uh, Genesis 16, story of Hagar, and uh, hopefully by now we have an idea what, what is going on here. Uh, we left off last week where uh, the angel Lord, who I believe is a pre-incarnate Jesus, tells Hagar to go back to her abuser, basically. is the way we would use uh language we'd use in, in a modern context. We talked about some of the reasons for that. One's provision. Another was promise, right? And uh, uh, right after uh, last week, some, some made some really good points. I think one of them, I, I think we should pause and consider just how radical the biblical notion of reconciliation really is. Um, I think in, in, in a fallen world, I'm not sure we really believe the Bible in how far it takes grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation. For example, I could I could preach the best sermon on forgiveness the world has ever heard. I won't do that, but I I could do it, right? And inevitably, at least one person is going to come up at the end. What are they going to ask? They're going to ask, yeah, yeah, but don't you get to a point where you just enough is enough, and you have to just remove yourself from that situation forever, right? They're going to ask it some something like that, right? Which is the question Jesus is getting about the seventy times seven. Right? And, and you can articulate, well, look, we should always be quick to forgive. We should play our par- part in seeking reconciliation. You could do all that. But then there is lingering there in, in what Jesus says is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But what are they doing? They are abusing him. They are physically harming him. The state is doing it. Uh, close friends are doing it. His his. Uh, eth- ethnic group is doing it. Everyone's doing it to him, yet he still prays for their forgiveness. I'm not sure we really take the Bible seriously could about reconciliation. And can you imagine how different the world would be if we all took the Bible seriously on the issue of reconciliation? It's almost like maybe we wouldn't, you know, be hating each other so much right now, right? But we've gotten to a point with our identity groups to where we think, okay, if you're in that identity group, you're less than human to me. You're unworthy of grace and forgiveness. So what you have here is Christ encouraging Hagar to reconcile with Sarah. And that, that is a radical idea for, for us. Um, and and, and uh, yet, yet the Bible takes us there, makes us wrestle with some of this. Well, I want to pick up in verse 11, and we'll just go verse by verse through this. Uh, so we get the promise in verse 10, verse 11. The angel Lord said to her, so she, she's, she, the promises given to uh, Abram are given to her. It's also a Genesis 3 language, be fruitful and multiply. Angel Lord said to her, verse 11, Behold, you are pregnant, shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So what we get here is a prophecy about Ishmael, and it's a significant passage, as, as, as you can imagine. Um, Muslims believe this actually happened. It's in the Quran, uh, but the difference is that they see in Ishmael the promised son, and uh, the Jews see in Isaac the promise. So, so the Muslims, this is, over, this is oversimplification, they'll basically come and say, Genesis 1 to, to 16, verse, you know, all the way through the end, is, is right. Where they get it wrong is in chapter 17, they start talking about Isaac, okay? Uh, because this is where, where the Bible made, made the big mistake. So like a uh, Jehovah Witness would say that Christianity was going great until the 4th century of the Council of Nicaea, 
when we made Jesus divine, right? And they say, no, this is where, where we went off. Mormons say the same thing. That's funny how heretics always turn to the moment we told we define what heresy was. Anyways, um, now, so, notice the first thing. Um, verse 11, she is to call her son Ishmael. Now, Ishmael basically means, or simply means, God hears. You can see it in the word there, right? There's two Hebrew words you should see. If you see E-L in the Old Testament, it likely has in the Hebrew L, meaning God. So Elohim, L is the short for Elohim. So Elijah, for example, would, uh, so it means my God is Yahweh. The Jah, J-H, is thinks the Latin, Yahweh. Um, here, Ishmael, there's the L. Now the Ishma, uh, take out the I, you have Shema. You probably know what the Shema is, right? Uh, um, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, or listen, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Uh, it's called a Shema because the first word in Hebrew, the, uh, you start with verb, the main verb, but then you do the uh, uh, object, the noun. Um, so that's Hebrew. So the first word in Deuteronomy 6 is hear or listen, Shema. And so it's called the Shema for, for, for that reason. Uh, we do the same thing with Mary's Magnificent and, and all that sort of stuff in the Bible. Just an easy way to remember things. So his name is Shema El, basically. Right? Again, oversimplification, but for our purpose, Shema El, hearing God. So God is the one who hears. God hears me. Right? And, and uh, this is significant for her, of, of course. God hears her cries. God hears her. Remember who this person is. She is a runaway slave who is, who is a refugee seeking refuge back in her hometown of Egypt. God meets her at a spring. This is the Garden of Eden story, right? God hears her. God meets her. Now notice, uh, he has listened, Shema, to your affliction. This is the first time in, in my little study, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, that this word is used. Now in Genesis... Uh, it always describes the plight of a woman in relation to conception, birth, labor, motherhood, pregnancy, something like that. Let me give you a few examples. You have this. Genesis 29, Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Now, notice the similarity between Leah and Hagar here. She's saying God has seen. Hagar is saying God has heard. Very similar stories. And it's the same word, affliction. But also knows we'll get, we'll, you know, in, in four years we'll get here. Uh, now my husband will love me. What a lie that is. Uh, this is a lie that, that women still believe about men uh, today. Um, if I sleep with him, that must mean he loves me. Right? Men can easily separate intimacy from love. Women naturally typically can't. Right? For men, it, it's called pornography and harlotry, Right? Women, those, those levels of those sort of sins are much lower because they, they associate intimacy with love. Men have no problem separating those two. Okay? Uh, but this is, this is the lie that is still around. Now I know my husband will love me because, because we, we've had a son or whatever it might be. But it's the same word, affliction. Hagar and, and Leah. Same thing in 31. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac has not been on my side, surely now... You would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Um, this is... It's not... I'm at a loss who this is. I could have told you earlier today. Anyway, same thing. So you have a woman here in the context of her uh, 
labor. Uh, 41, the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So you see, each time, um, the, the time that this word is used is in the context of, of, of childbearing, childrearing, something like that. In the Exodus, the same word is used, but it's used differently. Now, it has the same meaning, but it's not in the context of, of conception and birth or whatnot. It's in the context of slavery. All right? So let me give you just, just a few examples of this in Exodus. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. It's the same word here in Exodus 3 that we get here in Genesis 16 from Hagar. All right? Uh, Exodus 3.17, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites. All right. Same word used there. One more. Uh, we can look at others. Uh, the people believed when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. Now, Hagar, God hears their affliction. In, in Exodus, God sees their affliction. But it's, it's still the, the same word, same, same, same context. So I find this fascinating. This is me reading into the text, so you don't need to, uh, you know, make this part of your, your own study. But it's fascinating to me that if you take Genesis and Exodus together, the word affliction is applied to mothers in labor, pregnant, birth, whatever, and slaves seeking freedom. Okay? What is the story of Hagar? It is a slave in the context of labor. <laughs> It's fascinating, isn't it? Now, look, I believe this, the Holy Spirit inspired all the Bible. But sometimes you wonder, that's just too odd, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, did, did Moses really sit down and say, okay, I'm going to use this word, right? And it's all going to take you back to Hagar. I have no idea. Like, I, I just, I was going through it, doing a word study. And I thought, that is bizarre. Because it's an Egyptian slave and an issue of, of children. And what happens in Genesis, in Genesis it's, it's Jewish women whose descendants become as slaves of the Egyptians. And you get all of that into one character here of Hagar. You do with that whatever you want. That is free, and I will only charge you interest on that, or taxes, or whatever it is that, that you want. So, but it, what we need to see here is that God hears the cries of, 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 of afflicted mothers and afflicted slaves. And it's all seen in Hagar. And, and that shows up later. So what we're seeing here is God is stooping down to listen to the oppressed, the fallen, the hurt, the abused. God hears their cries. Well, this, of course, is going to be a major theme throughout the Bible, going all the way to Revelation, right? Because what are the prayers of the saints that Christ receives in Revelation 5? The prayers of the saints, in its context Revelation, are how long, O Lord, will you let our blood go without vengeance? Right? This, this, is, this is Christianity in a nutshell. Uh, that it, it wasn't until um, after Constantine did rich people <laughs> care about Christianity. It was always among the oppressed and the poor and everything. Um, but there you go. God hears. God listens. Verse 12. Uh, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. Now, now, before we even look at what this means, is that a compliment? <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, th th okay, so you, you've got your son, right? Right, you're just you're just minding your own business, and here comes someone and says, "What a beautiful child!" I had a wild donkey of a kid. You're thinking, "Back off, lady," you know, or "You stepping, sir?" Right? I mean, you don't think that's a compliment, right? But this is this is what the angel Lord is saying about uh, the child that she brings. Now, the one in, I I think we know some of these kids, don't we? Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and he suffers from BOYS syndrome, doesn't he? <laughs> right? He's a boy. Right? I mean, he's, he's, 
He's got that. And, and we, we understand, like if, if you've ever taught a class, you know, public school or something, you see, there are boys who are just wild. <laughs> For whatever reason, they're just wild. Um, I've, I uh, recently watched the uh, miniseries of Hatfield McCoys. And uh, I'm reading through a book about them, and I watch a documentary about. It. I get in some, I just chase chase that rabbit until I'm just tired of it. And and so, Devil Ants, right, was the clan leader of the Hatfields. He was not the oldest brother, but he became the patriarch of the Hatfields, even though he wasn't the who should have been at the top. His older brother was the one that got killed, and then I think another older brother. I could be wrong on this. Was the judge who eventually went to prison, and in his case went to the Supreme Court, all that sort of stuff. Um, but, but Devil Ants was not the, the oldest guy. He's usually the oldest brother who sort of takes over the family, right? Well, the reason is because Devil Ants, in case you can't tell by his nickname, was a wild donkey of a man. He would spend his spare time killing bears, <laughs> basically, right? He was just, just a wild dude. And, and, and he took that wildness, and he was ambitious, he was a natural leader, so that people just naturally just, just sort of came to him. Well, this is Ishmael. So even, even, yes, I think it is a bit insulting to a certain extent, but I also think we understand what is being communicated here. Uh, he, he's going to be on the wild side. By the way, and we'll get into this, we see something similar with Jacob and Esau, don't we? Think about it. So, so you see that, uh, so I'm skipping ahead, that's fine. Um, Ishmael is compared to an animal. Esau is likened to an animal. You remember that when Jacob deceives his father, who's he's gone blind, Isaac. What does Jacob put on? Puts on fur, doesn't he? Why? Because Isaac knows one son is is uh, you know puberty. One is very hairy. The the other is 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 like a boy band, right? You know, you, you've got both. How come every boy band, like none of them have hair in their chest, right? Give me one guy with a hairy chest, right? Because anyway, I'm gonna stop there. Um, yeah, yeah. Too many boy bands haven't hit puberty, but um, um, but so so you you have you have uh, Ishmael compared to an animal. Uh, Esau compared to an animal. And then, if you will remember, Cain is compared to, to an animal. You remember this? So uh, uh, he's, he's, he's about to do something to his brother, right? And it says, and God says, if you do well, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Now, I have a theory here. I'm going to think about this. What is the door? Now, it could be an allegorical, metaphorical door. I get that, right? Where did Adam and Eve go when they left? left? They, they went outside of Eden. They went through the gate, if you will. They went east. What if they settled just outside of Eden? The door here very well could be a reference to the door to Eden that they no longer had access to. Sin is crouching. Much in the way the Garden of Eden, you had an animal there crouching, ready to bite. So, too, it's almost as if God is saying that door, right, where that animal was, that serpent was, is, is, it, it's crouching at the door for you, just like your parents. I don't know if that's true or not, but I find that fascinating. But you see a pattern here, right? Cain and Abel, one is likened to an animal. Ishmael and Isaac, one is likened to an animal. Esau and Jacob, one is likened to an animal. Also notice, Cain is older than Abel. Ishmael's older than Isaac. Esau's older than Jacob. You see a pattern here. God sovereignly chooses the younger over the older. In ancient Near Eastern culture, the older always trumped the younger. 
This is an act of, of sovereign grace. Paul will pick up this particularly in, in Romans 9. So Abel, and of course Seth through Abel, uh, is the son of promise. Isaac, the son of promise. And Jacob, son of promise. Right? Uh, this is a pattern established in the book of Genesis. Now, uh, this prophecy that he will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, right? It seems to have been fulfilled. Um, the descendants of Ishmael settled southeast of Israel and were known as wild nomads, particularly in, 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 in this, this far back in the ancient world. I'm going to quote from a commentator here. The Ishmaelites are described as Bedouins who lived in the desert, raised camels, uh, we get a reference, reference of that in First Chronicles 27. And periodically overrun the permanent settlement and plundered it, Psalm 83.7, Judges 8.24. In addition, the Ishmaelites engaged in caravan trade. Now, can you think of a story where the Ishmaelites engaged in caravan trade involving slaves? How much for that boy in the pit? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know the Ishmaelites are going like, ah, must be a barbecue pit, right? And they go, oh, no. He said, oh, hey, we can make some money off our brother. They were Ishmaelites doing that. Nomads. And so they, they pop up throughout the Bible as semi, I don't think allies would be the right word, uh, neutral players with Israel. And other times they're just straight up enemies, like the Hatfield McCoys, right? You could trace the Hatfield McCoys, and they're, they're, they're intermarrying, and you don't have a lot of options back back at, you know, uh, around Civil War times in, in around the Tug River. So they're intermarrying. They're getting along fine. But something happens, right? And that's a matter of debate. Um, and all of a sudden, they're, they're enemies. Well, now, guess what they're doing? They're intermarrying again, right? Um, I, I was a few Sunday nights ago. I asked Lisa Irwin from Eastern Kentucky, if you can't tell her accent, I asked, are you related to either the Hatfield McCoys? And someone says, well, what a... You know, they look at me like, what a kind of offensive question, you know? And she goes, no, but my cousin or whatever, you know? And I was like, I knew it, right? Everyone in Eastern Kentucky is related to Hatfield McCoys because everyone in Eastern Kentucky is related to everyone in Eastern Kentucky, much like Owen County. This is Kentucky. So that's, that's sort of the way the, the Jewish people in Ishmael life. Yeah, Carrie's probably related to, to the... You're, you're, one of y'all's in the Hatfield, yeah, and, and Carla is, is, might be the McCoy Vice versa. And Mary Price both. I can almost guarantee she's got a little bit of both in it. Yeah. <laughs> your mama was on the McCoy side and your daddy was on over at Tadpole Holla or whatever. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, so um, now the Ishmaelites are also connected from, from what I can understand. I don't understand how it all works. The Medianites and the Malachites. Now those two people groups show up in the book of Exodus. Moses flees to the land of Media. Now, here's the story, right? Hagar, who is the matriarch of the Midianites, is going to Egypt. Moses will later go from Egypt to the Midianites. Right? And remember that Jethro fits, at least thematically, in the line of Melchizedek. There's, this, there's these priests who aren't of the line of Aaron, but, but they're still priests of God. Right. However, later, uh, David will, and I think they will end up destroying the Midianites. So to Moses, on his way to uh, Canaan, has to fight the Amalekites. So they're enemies, but they're also, at times, neutral. 
Is it, who is it that uh, Saul was supposed to kill the Amalekites, right? But he, he left the king. Someone help me out here. This is off the top of my head. Was that the Amalekites? The king's name was Agag. So I, it probably wasn't the Amalekites. Because Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. But his descendant becomes um, in the story of Esther. Uh, that's probably not the Amalekites. That's okay. That's what I get for thinking out loud. Um, so they'll swing between periods of peace and conflict th- throughout their history. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, wild donkey of a man. Um, verse 13. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You, a, you are a God of seen, for she said... Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'ir Lahath Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Berit. There's a lot going on here. A whole lot going on here. First of all, notice that Hagar responds with worship. She names the Lord, but, but the language suggests she is calling upon the Lord. Which takes us back to what her husband, if you use the language of Scripture, did in Genesis 12. God made a promise that your descendants will be many. He called upon the name of the Lord. Hagar is given a promise by God, and she calls the name of the Lord. She, she, she's calling upon, upon him. Um, and you also notice that she names God. This, I, this may be the only time someone does that. Don't quote me on that. It seems like I came across that. But it certainly is unique for a woman to do this in the Bible and for a Gentile to be doing this in the Bible. She names God. She gives him a name. And remember, it is God who names himself for the Israelites. Here, Hagar gives a name for God. And notice the name she gives God. El Roy. God sees. And that name shows up in the name of the well. Be'er Laha Roy. So, now, notice what we have here. Ishmael means God hears. The well means, essentially, God sees. Be'ir laharoi means the well of the living one who sees, something like that. Uh, but she names God, uh, the God who sees me. Um, but it also notice it says, God spoke to her. So right here in this text with Hagar, we have God hears, God sees, God speaks. Who is he seeing, hearing, and speaking to? An Egyptian slave oppressed refugee in the middle of the wilderness whom God provides a spring of living water for. And it's very easy at this point to go right to John 4 to read the story of the uh, woman at the well. Who's all alone. Jesus hears her, sees her, speaks to her. And the application of this text I think is very obvious that this is how God still deals with sinners. He hears he sees and he speaks. It's an incredible story. Absolutely just just, just incredible, incredible uh, story uh, that we have here. And so, verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Notice the repetition there. Um, and, and, and the implication of the text is she, she obeyed the angel of the Lord, went back uh, to Abram and Sarah. Uh, and there Abram officially names his son. There's that timestamp, verse 16. Abram was 86 years old. 
when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. It's been 11 years since the initial promise. This is not the promised son, according to Scripture. So he's 86, and he still doesn't have that promised son. He's got a little more drama in his life, um, but he still doesn't have that promised son. And this is going to pick up in chapter 17, where uh, Abram, Abraham is given the, uh, uh, the sign of circumcision, and then another promise about Isaac is, is made. Right? And this will all culminate in chapter 22, where Abraham must offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Right? And of course, the conflict between uh, Ishmael and um, Isaac. Well, with that, uh, let's turn to Galatians 4. Um, I had forgotten this until I was just doing my own study, but the New Testament talks about this story, which is odd. You really think about it. It's, it's a bit of an odd story to, to, to emphasize in the New Testament. But Paul makes kind of a big deal about it. And of any part of Galatians, this is the most difficult to interpret. So what, I, what I'm not going to do is answer everything here and go through. I, I just sort of want us to get the big picture here. What, so Paul takes this story and he uses it, he, he tells us, as an allegory for his, his broader point, Galatians. Remember, Galatians is actually the first sermon series we ever had here was Galatians. Um, and uh, I remember coming to this and uh, thinking, what in the world is Paul talking about? Uh, but you remember the context of Galatians is there are Judaizers, people who want to turn the gospel into rule-keeping, uh, and they use circumcision as, as one of the main arguments there, uh, which is interesting because God has already declared Abraham righteous, and it's before circumcision. Now, we, we've talked about that before. Uh, that's in chapter 15. But, uh, but Paul turns to this passage. I think it's because this is a passage the... Judaizers were using to defend legalism. Paul uses it to defend grace. Uh, so um, I just thought we'd, we'd look at it. We, we won't, I don't want to spend really much time on this. Uh, chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? <laughs> and if you're a politician, you don't have to. Um, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Hagar, and one by a free woman. That's Sarai. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, what he's not saying is Isaac was born of a virgin. That's not his point. His point is, is that what led to the birth of Ishmael was fleshly, right? uh, as, as the story showed. What led to the, to the birth of Isaac was promise. God had made a covenant, and he fulfilled it, and, and, and that is how you got Isaac. Verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, let's just pause here. I do believe there is room to read the Bible um, typologically, which I do a lot. Uh, so we see that you know, Noah is a type of Christ, something like that. Uh, we do a lot of that. But the other is allegorically. And let me just say when it comes to reading the Bible allegorically, I don't think you should ever read the Bible allegorically unless the Bible says we're reading this allegorically. <laughs> so we're doing that here, and it's very limited context. So I'm sure you've, you've been in some settings. If you study enough church history, you'll get tons of this, um, where you take a passage, and the conclusion sounds really profound, has nothing to do with what the text actually said. Uh, I recently uh, uh, did something on Psalm 23. And a guy came up to me afterwards, and he said, well, don't you see 
that you're the shepherd, uh, the, the uh, sheepdogs are the... He, he had like three or four things. What he had done is he'd taken Psalm 23 and allegorized it. Now, it's a metaphor, right? It's about the good shepherd, ultimately. But he had turned into allegory. And I just sort of smiled and went about, went about my day. Um, we do this with the Bible all the time, okay? Uh, the example I like to give is uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, that you can, you can say that the, the man represents Adam who, uh, comes, who, who falls into sin in the wilderness and the robbers, and that's, that's this. Augustine did that. So I encourage you, do not read the Bible allegorically unless the Bible tells you to, okay? That's just my little speech. All right, um, that's what Paul's doing. Now, I, Paul doesn't usually do this. I think the Judaizers are doing this, and he's, he's using it as a weapon against them. These women are two covenants. So that, that's, that's, that's the broad point he's making, that they represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. So you got two mountains, two women, two sons, two covenants, right? So these are essentially all synonyms. The mountain represents, you know, represents Hagar, which represents the law, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. Uh, now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Here's the big deal, is that Hagar represents slavery. He's going to argue that the law is slavery. And that's his general point here with, with Hagar. Um, verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. So Ishmael picks on Isaac, right? He's the wild donkey of the man. He isn't, right? So, so, so too, the law bullies grace. And that's the problem in Galatia this time. People who show up and say, well, I'm more spiritual because I keep these 10 rules that you don't. Does that ever happen today? Anyone ever grow up in the American South of the last 200 years? Now, next few generations probably be a little different. We'll be more libertarian. But I grew up very much this. The story I always like to tell is it was raining, and on Wednesday nights we ate at the pool hall. Non-gambling, non-alcoholic pool hall. Don't judge me. And, and I had a to-go cup, right, of, I don't know, Coca-Cola, whatever it was. I didn't want to walk around the church in the rain to put my drink in the fellowship hall. What I did was I walked through the front doors, carried my drink through the sanctuary, There was an elderly lady whose arm still works just fine. She swatted me down the aisle. Right? Now, are you going to hell because you bring any fluids in, into the sanctuary? Which reminds me. Oh, I don't think you, you, you do. This is water with uh, flavor in it. Don't judge me. Let she be judged. I, uh, uh, we, uh, I let our... our a church I served at once through some systemic changes, and we we uh, we updated some things that hadn't been updated um, since Abraham walked the earth. And uh, one of them we set up was uh, using the property, you know. And one of the things we had was um, no food or drink in the sanctuary. Okay. Now the context is if a member or non-member wants to use the facilities, this is sort of the policy we have, right? Our church has one, virtually every church has one. 
And this person looked at me. Now, this person was on the committee that we made this. Now we're going to vote on it as a church, okay? This person says, well, I disagree with about food and drink because you have a water with you during worship. Now, this person, and what bothers the person was on the committee never brought it up. I probably had a water on me then and there. And this is before I was drinking a gallon of water a day, okay? And I said, first of all, you're on the committee. Why do you need to bring this up? Secondly, we're not talking about the preacher needing water when his mouth gets dry during, during the sermon, right? We're talking about rental or, or using the property, right? This is two different things. But there was a mindset is you don't do this. Um, our uh, DOM and I went to a uh, uh, Gospel Every Home training in Lexington, and they were feeding us. Chick-fil-A, of course. You already knew that. And, um, and the guy stood up. He said, here's the plans for lunch. You're going to go out here. You're going to get your food. And then you're going to – and he goes, to show you how much things have changed, you're going to eat in the sanctuary. And let me tell you, I was excited and I was scared to death. You, you ever get that feeling, right? You know, like when mom and dad said, okay, it's now okay to do this thing. And you're like, you know, like, is this, is this one of those tests? Like, you're going to get me, you know, I'm on camera. So I remember I was very careful about every crumb, right? I don't, I don't, want, I don't want the preacher to get fired because of this, right? Well, well that's, that's legalism, right? And legalism will always bully itself. Now, are we getting bullies in a legalistic sense in our culture? Does anyone know what June is, supposedly? So... If you get on Twitter right now, you can go to any company, and their, 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 their logo is in rainbow colors. You know this. If you were to go to that same company but their Middle Eastern account on Twitter, no rainbow colors. Who's the bully in both cultures? I'll just leave it there, right? Legalism bullies, and, and, and that's, that's the point Paul is making here. Ishmael bullies Isaac. The law always bullies grace. Always, always. It is always a temptation. Always is. Because what you'll hear is, okay, you accepted Jesus, now go do this. Well, how come you keep falling into this sin? How come you keep making these mistakes? What you're getting is bullying with legalism. That's not, it's not the gospel. Yes, I believe in holiness. I used the example the other day. It was, was, I love my wife more than anything in this world. We're talking about, should you go to church if, if, if you... Go, you know, see Jesus. But church don't save you, no. But I love my wife more than anything in this world. So naturally, my life is geared around the things I love, right? It's, it's, I'm not forced to kiss my wife in the morning, right? There is no law that I have next to my bed that says, thou shalt not get out of bed until you give your wife a kiss this morning, right? There's no, nothing like that. But why would we Remember birthdays and anniversaries and, and take, take a day off to, to, to have a date. You know, why do we do these things? It's natural. The things you love, you will focus your attention and dedication to that, right? I like soccer a whole lot. And so, you know, Arsenal in July are going to be in Florida. I'm just saying, if you have free plane tickets and want to get rid of me for a week, you know, no, I'm, I'm kidding. But, but, but why? We, we do that, right? The things you love, you, you, your life will really be, be centered around that. So too when it comes to the gospel. If, if Christ is what you love, it is natural to want to be around other worshipers of Christ. It's not a mystery. Right? Our whole lives are like this. That's not legalism. That's grace. That's transformation. Right? But what you get is, well, you miss church one day, you're going to hell now. Right? We, we, we've all grown up with this. Well, I spent longer on that than I intended. Um, uh, verse 30. What does the Scripture say? 
Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, remember, this is allegory. He's not saying if you're a descendant of Ishmael, you're outside of grace. He's saying allegorically that there's, there is a, there's grace and there's law. We are not descendants of law because that's not promise. The gospel is, is rooted in grace. So be children of grace. That's his point. And he goes all the way back to this, this story about Hagar to make a point about the gospel. I find that fascinating. Well, I told you we get out early. Let's get out early. Um, anything we're missing? Mark, you got any good puns? No, they Amalekites. So that's who they were supposed to slaughter. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Correct. Nailed it. So, so the Amalekites are in, in... I think the Amalekites are associated with uh, some of the giants... Someone, you can do, do your own study. Um, I'm exhausted. But I think they're associated with some of the giants in the wilderness, the Nephilim, the Rephilim, some of that. Um, and they don't wipe them all out. They show up again with Samuel, with Saul. He doesn't wipe them out. And then it's the descendants of Agag that's trying to take down the Jews in the story of Esther, um, who himself is finally hung. So it's interesting, interesting stuff. Wild donkey of a man, which fits. All right, how about we, we stand up and... And pray.